Hey y'all, welcome to Deep in the Work, a culture podcast. I'm Delana R.A. Dameron, a Black Southern woman, a sometimes historian, lover of Black culture, poet and writer, emerging backyard gardener and culture fundraising strategist. I am also the founder of Red Olive, an arts and culture fundraising firm with its philanthropic arm, Black Art Futures Fund, a collaborative project seeking to move people and resources to small Black arts organizations across the country. In all things, I am after the Blackest artistic future possible, and deep in the work is my love letter to the people who make it work, specifically the Black culture workers, the undercurrent of the field. Deep in the work is for you if you want to think about ways to go deeper in your own work, hear the stories of colleagues in the field, and perhaps understand the threads that tie us all together. In this first season, I'm giving flowers to Black women, culture workers who are deep in the work with me. In this episode, we're talking to Renee Watson, an award-winning young adult author whose narratives and characters I truly wished I had on my bookshelves growing up. Her protagonists are tough cookies, brown and full-bodied young black girls, and yet resilient. Renee herself is a dynamic world builder who put that expertise to work in real life with the I2 Arts Collective, a project that activate the Langston Hughes' house in East Harlem. We talk through what it means to build a world that doesn't yet exist, who you need with you along the way, and how black women are truly the center of the universe, and maybe there wouldn't even be a world without our generosity and care. You'll hear more about it in the conversation. Renee is a New York Times bestselling author, educator, and activist. Her young adult novel, Piecing Me Together, Bloomsbury 2017, received a Coretta Scott King Award and Newbery Honor. Her poetry and fiction often centers around the lived experiences of black girls and women and explores themes of home identity and the intersections of race, class, and gender. Renee served as the founder and executive director of I2 Arts Collective, a nonprofit committed to nurturing underrepresented voices in the creative arts from 2016 to 2019. Renee grew up in Portland, Oregon, and currently lives in New York City. This episode was recorded on May 22nd. 2020. Let's get started. Um, and if you could introduce yourself however you like. Uh, so my name is Renee Watson and I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I live in Harlem, New York, and I'm an author and um, I work with young people. I write for young people. So a lot of my work is around building community that um, inspires and impacts young people. Awesome. Is that what you consider work? Is there anything else that you do that you would call your work? I mean, well, so definitely I think my books are my work and I, I do a lot of, I have done a lot of nonprofit work, as you know, but right now I think when I'm thinking about what I do, like for a living or for work, I usually say it author, but under that title of author, <laughs> there's a whole lot of, you know, other things. I think partly because I write for young people, it just takes on a whole different life. I think um, in the types of events that I do and the types of resources I provide for educators, for young people, for their parents. So I do a lot of work around helping young people tell their own stories and helping teachers bring those stories into the classroom. And so it, you know, it goes on and on from being an author. But I think the, 
the start for me these days is I start with I'm an author. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think I um, ever thought about, like, all of the other labor that you might be doing uh, as an author for young people, which seems to be, I mean, like, you know, authors of not young adult fiction do public readings like I see you all the time doing public readings and conversations but um, I wonder if they too get asked to do that type of work yeah I don't I don't know I mean, I'm sure it depends on what you know what you're interested in too so I, I bring that with me as far as uh, okay. wanting to <laughs> teach poetry to to young people uh, to raise up teen writers um, and holding trainings and professional development workshops for educators who are wanting the tools to be able to talk about social issues in the classroom, um, but maybe just don't have that as, that's not their strength. <laughs> so I do a lot of work around how do we talk about social issues through the arts with young people. So a lot of what I do besides writing the actual book itself is then thinking about teacher guides and how to use this book in the classroom how to get students to respond and then tell their own stories and, you know, how to have brave and safe spaces in, yeah. in community centers and classrooms to get young people talking. And, and I'm also very much interested in the intergenerational conversation too. So that's been an, um, a fun part of it is getting mothers and daughters having book clubs and then having conversations about some of the things that come up in my work. I write a lot about social issues and beauty and body and blackness and black girlhood. And so to have an older generation talking to their daughters and granddaughters about their own bodies and their blackness and their womanhood has been really powerful to witness too. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so today is I like to call out and like timestamp things, right? Today yeah. is May 22nd, 2020. Um, we are in week whatever of <laughs> this very <laughs> weird moment of like the times of coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, can you tell me like what your days might have been like before this um, and what they look like now? So my days before this, like literally I was traveling a lot. Yeah. Uh, I feel like 2019 was all travel. I wasn't home in New York much at all. Like, and if I was, it was, you know, maybe three days and then I'd leave again or be in for a week and then be out again. Uh, I was on several book tours and right before uh, we were all on lockdown. So the beginning of 2020, I had just said, I need a break and I'm not going to be traveling <laughs> yep. this year. And I don't want to, you know, all of that. And uh, so I had one, I had two trips that were right before in March, early March. And it was the week before it got really bad everywhere in the U.S. Like I, I it was kind of like, okay, something's happening in Washington and yeah. in California, but it wasn't quite in New York yet, or, or, or to our knowledge, you know? And so I remember being on a plane and a woman coughed and you would have thought that, I mean, everybody was like, hey, hey, hey you know, just like body, language, everything just, you know, changed and shifted. And yeah, I, I was starting to feel the tension um, when I was out. And then 
just a few days after I got back from traveling from that last trip in New York, they were like, okay, we're, you know, social distancing and all of that started. When you are like thinking of yourself as, you know, the author and the, the person that you were talking about, like doing all of these like supplementary stuff for teachers and educators in conjunction with your work, is that also kind of still an active component of your life now? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's so, it's interesting. We, we meaning my publisher and I, my team, uh, I had a new book that was scheduled to be released April 28th. So that was like, right, you know, when everything was unsure and, you know, tra- things were being canceled, like kind of last minute, like now we know, okay, this is not happening in July or in August. But at that point, things that were on the schedule for April and May were just becoming like, okay, we can't do it. You can't go on your next book tour. Um, And so we had to think about, do we want to postpone the book and, you know, maybe move it to falls or do we want to keep it where it is and just see what we can do? Um, And so I was like, well, I want to be thoughtful and intentional about how to support parents and educators right now who quickly had to pivot into doing everything, you know, online and social, like thinking about what do they need and how can I support? Um, And not necessarily, hey, buy my book, but just like, do you need, you know, do you want a reading for young people, a poetry workshop, or, you know, something like that, just to give them a moment to breathe and get get it together and figure out what they were going to do. So, yeah, I very much have been, in some ways, just as busy (laughs) when I'm not traveling. I mean, when I am traveling, like physically going places, I've been doing a lot of Google Meets and Zoom um, events, partly because we did, you know, for the week that the book was out, we definitely had a plan for that week but even beyond that yeah I've been coming in and and speaking with people I I should mention part of my background is creative arts therapy I mean that really is that's what I went to school for I didn't go to school for writing per se I took writing courses but my focus was how do we use the arts to help kids cope with trauma Um, so I was looking at Uh, art therapy, drama therapy, and then using the written word. And so when crisis, when these types of things happen, I usually am a person who is, you know, in contact with people who work with young people and helping them think about the the children. And, you know, so much of this is, it's so big. And I feel like adults, rightfully so, you know, are worried about the big problems yeah. and the long-term things. And sometimes we forget that our little ones are human and they have emotions and feelings and they might not be able to put it into words, but they see and they hear and they feel what's going on. And so I, I want to make sure we're thinking about them and making sure that we are taking care of them and doing right by them. So yeah, I've been doing quite a few conversations and um and interacting with young people too i don't think i knew that about you Um. oh (laughs) yeah yep that's what i went to school for i my i was i went to the new school i finished there i didn't start there but i went back to school as an adult in my late 20s because i was teaching poetry workshops and 
kind of freelance artists, teaching artists, writer in residence, you know, every city calls it something different. But in doing that work so many times, I would be in, in school sessions. So like come in as a guest writer and teach alongside an English teacher. And I would be teaching poetry or theater. And young people would pour their hearts out on the page or get on stage and do these dynamic monologues that were coming from true places about things they've witnessed or seen or experienced. And they would be crying and it would be emotional and it was such a deep, you know, these very deep experiences. And then the bell would ring and they'd have to go to math. Right. And I was like, uh, I don't know about this. Like, I need some training. Like, I, I wanted to figure out, like, what are the structures and boundaries of having young people go there, but what's appropriate for, you know, school day versus after school versus a retreat? And what are um, prompts that trigger certain kinds of emotions and prompts that help you keep it in for where you are? That kind of thing. I just want to train right. on how, the, how do the arts actually um, help young people. I believed that they did just by kind of knowing what they had done for me, but I didn't, I needed proof <laughs> and I yeah. needed, you know, actual training. So I went back to school and, and to New York um, at the new school. And that's what I was studying and got my like certification in knowing that I would never, I was like, I don't want to be a therapist. I don't want to have my own office where I'm seeing clients and doing therapy, but I knew that I wanted to use that and have that knowledge when I was teaching and writing for young people. So that's why a lot of my work kind of goes into that vein of healing and um, getting young people to process what's happening in their world. Wow. Yeah. So, so I, so my next question was going to be like, you know, what is the role of arts and culture? Um, but I feel like you've, you've talked about that already just in sort of describing um, the learning that you undertook to be able to like put your artistic practice into a different context. Um, but I wonder if maybe there is anything else to be said about just like um, the work of art and culture on like a normal day and is it just enough? <laughs> and then like now, like just to go a little bit deeper. Yeah, so that's interesting, a normal day versus now. I think in some ways, now is normal. Mm -hmm. It's just a different kind of, you know, it, it shows itself in a different way. But the root of the kind of fear and anxiety and um, injustice that's happening right now is not new. You know what I mean? Yep, so, yep. There's something about... I think that's why it is powerful to constantly and always um, be in a state of, of healing <laughs> and reflection because there's always something traumatic happening, even if it is a very personal trauma or a national or inter at this you know, point international. Um, so yeah, I think that's why this work is important or any work of art and culture spaces that we are and in many ways, preserving stories and adding on to those stories all like at the same time, always. It's like a yes and 
thing for me where I'm constantly looking back to see what art I can lean on to gain strength from for what is happening right now and then trying to create work for now and for tomorrow. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, Who or what is some of the artwork that you're leaning on now? I have been reading a lot of Lucille Clifton Mm -hmm. and um, Gwendolyn Brooks Yep. Maya Angelou, just going back to, you know, Toni Morrison um, and not even for Toni, not even like her books, but just quotes by her, yeah. uh, inter- like watching interviews and just kind of saturating myself with these black women who lived through all kinds of trauma and and all kinds of joy. Like I love reading their work and I've been, I've been talking a lot about this. I say it a lot about how how could these women still praise their bodies and their their neighborhoods and their towns even when all of the when it wasn't popular when it wasn't a hashtag about black girl magic and all those things that they were you know sure of themselves and um rooted in something and when i think about what was going on during the times that they created nationally um i just get a lot of strength from that and encouragement from knowing that people have survived and we will keep surviving this world that we are living in. And for me, as as a writer um, and as my first love being poetry, they, that's kind of my go-to. Like I, I pray and I read poetry (laughs) and that is what like keeps me uh, literally, I'm serious, like from losing my mind, like from losing hope, from, you know, uh, giving up. So yeah, I've been, I've been really leaning in on their works and not even like for Lucille, especially thinking of a lot of her old poems that celebrate herself. And so I've been kind of trying to find the joy and um, lean into that. Do you consider yourself to be uh, a cultural worker, an arts worker? You know, (laughs) I mean, yes and no. (laughs) I really, really, I don't, I don't know. I have a hard time with, with define like definitions, yeah. um, you know, activist. It's an artsy thing to say. <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, there you go. Um, I, yeah, I just, I feel like I, I just want to do good work in the world. And I feel like it falls under categories that I'm like, oh, okay, that's what that's called. And that's, I know that can sound weird coming from a writer who like words are so important and what you name things is important. Um, but I'm cautious of saying that I am a cultural worker or I am an activist. I am this, um, because I know that that brings expectations that sometimes are not what, what I want to do with those words or how I want to exist. So yes. I mean, when you look at the, I, I have definitely, you know, done community organizing and, all of the, everything I just talked about, my work with I2R's collective, like all of that falls under that category for sure. And I'm not trying to shy away from that, but it would never be something I'd put all on a business card. <laughs> you right, know what right. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But isn't, but I feel like, you know, to kind of go back to the idea of like, even expectations of writers, right? Like how you sort of quantified your statement by saying that. Um, that like I love the idea of writers as like world makers, right? Mm. So like the idea of like you're making a world in which you can stand and do all of these things 
in a way that might not fit under those titles, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> I think that's what it is too. And it's funny, I've always been, I've been that way. I don't know, my whole life, like I, I knew I wanted to teach, but I didn't want to be a teacher, like a classroom <laughs> teacher. I wanted to do acting, but not necessarily like movie star, you know, um, all those things. Yeah, I wanted to work with youth, but I didn't really know how that would pan out. And so, yeah, now that I look back over my schooling and, and things that I've said I wanted to do, I've, I've figured out how to do them. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes there's not a title for that or there's not an actual career on career day when they come to your high school and say, what do you want to be? Right. Some, you know, I, it was hard for me to find where to go. I didn't want to be a counselor, but I wanted to do counseling. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think it's part of that too. Is that like... Um the black people gene right like being of service to others (laughs) mostly thinking about like the the like the care and the service to others right like yeah it's it's black people it's being a woman it's growing up in a a black christian baptist church you know like (laughs) i just i don't know that i had a choice to think about um service and and doing like my mother we could not go to church. We had to be involved in church. Mm-hmm. There was no such thing as like, we just go on Sunday and leave. Like we had to pick something we wanted to do. To, we, mandatory was like the youth Bible study or youth group. Yeah. Um, and one other thing. So for me, it was choir. And one of my sisters was like an usher, the, the junior usher board. You know what I mean? So we, <laughs> we had to be involved and do things. And I think she kind of, yeah, she just kind of trained me and embedded that in me to be a doer and to not just take from a place, um, but to give back to it. Uh, Even if you don't have a lot, like I, even money-wise, like I remember, and I, I think, I have been thinking about this memory a lot, especially right now, as so many organizations are in need of donations and just thinking about, you know, how can I support and what can I do? My mother, um divorced my my dad after 19 years of marriage and she hadn't worked for those 19 years so she's so at the beginning of the 80s so she is kind of like having to really re um imagine herself and get new skills get a new job all of that right and she moved from the east coast back to portland to be closer to her family and really struggled financially for the first few years to kind of get on her feet with in the house at the time with four girls. My brother was already gone to the Marines. So five children, single, and having to figure out computer skills and what am I gonna do and you know, start our life over. But on on Sunday, every Sunday, we all gave offering. There were three offerings because we went to Sunday school, so they passed the basket for that. And then there was like the church offering and then a benevolent offering that was like for missions. And she would give all four of her children a quarter and two dimes. And you knew to give the dime in, in Sunday school, give the other dime and the uh, church offering and the quarter and the missions offering. And without fail, like if I forgot to get that from her and I was sitting somewhere else in the church, you know, when I was old enough to sit by myself or with yep. my friends, <laughs> I would, I mean, like panic. Cause it was like, I gotta give. And like, uh-huh. go, you know, get up, go over to her, get them. Like I, it was a thing that um, I held very dear. And she was teaching me something. 
that out of out of the little bit that she had, she was still going to make sure that she gave. Um, and I think that that just has been something that has stayed with me my whole my whole life. Whether whatever I think about, you know, church and the politics of it and all of that, the principle that's there of and we never went without, like we never had our lights shut out. We never had, yep. Yep. you know, beat it through all of that, you know? So she was just teaching us something about being grateful and giving and how, how to take care of the community that you're a part of. Yeah. So that I think shows up in my life, you know, in many ways. Man. Yeah. I mean, I, it's so interesting. So, you know, that this is like, in co- we are in conversation together um, and I'm sort of doing a constellation of black women conversations like at this moment and undoubtedly like the church has been an interesting undercurrent mm-hmm. um, and then like community care also as like an undercurrent um, and it's just like, man, what would the world be without black women? <laughs> right? Oh, <laughs> like, man. Would there be a world without black women? Right. Like, that's a real question. It really is. I mean, we we show up. We show up for for us and for others. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes, like, in spite of ourselves to show up mm-hmm. for others. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean the lesson and there was I, I'm holding on to that the good part of that lesson of sacrifice and giving and all of that but there were certainly things that I've also inherited from growing up in that way of of not setting good boundaries for myself or of having you know this expectation of myself to be everything for everybody and you know it can definitely go to an extreme yeah. And in my in more recent years, I've learned a better balance of that. But yeah, we're we're taught to be nurturers for sure. And I, I mean, I think it's natural for us. But there is also the reinforcement of yes, and you should be this way. Right. Um, so I, I always said I really don't know that I had a choice uh. in what I <laughs> that kind of household that I grew up in. I just yeah, I was gonna be who I am right now because that's who my mama raised. Yeah, right. And then we think that, like, did you ever have a moment where you're like, now I can do whatever I want, and then you came back to this, or it just kind of stayed constant? It stayed constant. I think there were moments when I didn't know what it was going to look like, or I didn't, um, I just wasn't sure that I could do it. But it's been a pretty, like, I can look back even before, like, before adulthood, even in high school, when I think of what I was doing in high school, (laughs) Like meaning, so my senior year, my English teacher just kind of, I don't know, she saw the gift of writing in me and she just, she saw that I was a leader. So she picked me to be like a a peer teacher to her freshman class. And so I would do the writing assignment that she was giving them and go, basically I was a teaching artist. Like I would go (laughs) um, to her freshman class, teach the lesson, read my poem to them and then have them write their version of that poem um, alongside her for sure but definitely she was grooming me and so I've just kind of always had women again another woman in my life to kind of say okay you have this gift or you have this research you have this talent here's how you keep doing it and give back 
like that has kind of been cycled throughout my whole my whole educational experience and then as an adult so the world knows you as an award-winning Nikki Giovanni loved author (laughs) 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 and I think that um, it's important to your work in other areas Um, and I want to talk about you mentioned like in a flyby but you know that I want to talk about like your role as the volunteer emphasis added executive director of i2 arts collective um and like maybe we start with like how you came to just kind of like bring a world together around the links and hughes house i i moved to harlem i can't even i guess it was 2005 is when I came to New York and I you know I mean I'm a black writer and yep. I'm from Portland Oregon and you arrived that was, was me too I love you know yeah um, and just like walking on that pavement and all of that I just it was such a big deal for me personally to be living in Harlem and to be just blocks away from his home and I really I thought in my head I had like pumped it up that when I go to see his house it's going to be a museum and, you know, like the, like the King house in Atlanta or something like that, that people could go in, you know? So when I went and, and walked by, I realized that it wasn't that, you know, it was standing and they had the plaque that definitely, you know, kind of commemorated that he lived there, but it wasn't open to the public. And so I wanted to do something about that. Even then when I first moved here and was just, you know, too young and inexperienced and didn't, I couldn't do anything at that moment, but I I always had that thought in my head that like somebody should do something or one day I wanted to do something like that was kind of something buried in me that I didn't talk about to anybody. It was just something I really wanted. And then um, as, as Harlem kept changing and being gentrified and I just got nervous about like, oh, it we got to do it now like we can't you know i can't keep waiting on someone to do it because we're gonna lose uh, so many of our spaces um i would go on a book tour and come back and not recognize you know my landmarks would be gone because this building is now a coffee shop and this place this restaurant is closed and i was like what is happening i had just lived through gentrification in a very brutal way in portland oregon in my black neighborhood there and just could not just not get involved you know I had to do something um and so yeah I just thinking about you know my book my book that was at at the time um is this side of home and that book deals with gentrification (laughs) so I had been having all these conversations with young people and kind of like sending them out and saying you know learn your local history and do something, get involved, and you know, all these things I was kind of pushing them to do and then felt very convicted that here I am living in Harlem and I don't really, I'm not involved. Like I lived here, but by way of traveling so much for my books, I think I just kind of, I don't know, I, I wanted to be more involved in the local community here. And so those things kind of pushed me to just to start the organization and to think about what we wanted it to be. And then it developed into like, oh, I don't want this to be a museum actually. Like I don't want it to just be a space where you come in and learn about him. Like how do we create a space 
where his legacy is, you know, definitely living and vibrant. And we talk about him, but we have people add on to that and like tell their own stories and, and write their truths and um, kind of take back the mic and put on record who they are. Yep. So yeah, those, those were the beginning seedlings of creating this space in, in Harlem, in his home that could nurture young voices and emerging voices um, and then also honor like very established voices. You know, I wanted there to be that, that conversation of all three and that we would have events that could be very grassroots, you know, um, artists who maybe are not these, you know, big name writers, but also have those big name writers in the space too. And how do you create um, space where it can hold both of those types of events? Yeah. Did you say the year? I hope I didn't miss it. Um, no, I didn't. That okay. was so. I started. We started fundraising and and kind of established the name and everything in 2016. Okay. The summer of 2016. We fundraised for, I mean, it was a great, like it was a one month um, yeah. <laughs> like valiant effort to raise money. We, you know, once I, once we, let me back up and slow down the story, I guess. That's no, okay. But, we can, I mean, we'll get, we'll get there. But Okay. So but yeah, 2016 summer, we raised the money. And in the fall, we took that time to like, you know, get the space ready mm-hmm. and to organize the board and, and really get some concrete vision down of what we wanted to do in year one and year two and then we opened officially on his birthday in february of 2017. ah okay thank you for that timeline um it's so interesting um to think (laughs) about no i like literally to think about like the summer of 2016 as like i feel like mm, i'm just gonna say it black folks had like this intuition that like shit was about to change because yeah. I think about like so many of my own just like life affirming spaces that I got to experience through arts mm-hmm. and culture started that summer, right? And yeah. so it's like something in the air, like <laughs> was this just like this like un like unheard like message that was just coursing through us that was yeah. just like we need to like double down and like make some ways for uh, for us yeah um, that's so interesting yeah um i have uh i i have a request um if you could read i think your organization's title poem and then sort of explain um why this became the name of the collective can you see okay. this yeah yeah sure um so our organization was called I2 Arts Collective, and we got our name from Langston's poem, I2 Sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, They'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. You know, we knew that we wanted to have one of his poems be the anchor of the organization. And I wanted something that was personal and community. So even just the phrase, I too, 
felt like, yeah, like me and then other people, um, yeah. you know? And so, yeah. And then, you know, arts collective, like it very much, I wanted to create something that, that not just felt like there's a way there. I think there are, are spaces where you can say like, I want people to feel this, but we really wanted to be a collective. We didn't want it to feel like one. Yep. We wanted it to actually be um, people coming in and having ownership in a very personal way, but it always being connected back to the larger community and the larger group of artists. And so, um, I mean, there's just so much about the poem that I love. We, we were very, our mission was to nurture underrepresented voices in the arts. And so when I think about him, you know, talking about not being able to sit at the table and knowing though that he belongs there and that he will be there, that was definitely a part uh, and a thread that ran through all of our programming is how do we make our own space and not wait to be invited to some of the bigger institutions or, you know, how do writers who don't have the money to rent, I mean, you know, this is New York City. And if you yeah. don't have money to rent out a space, but you want to have a launch event or you want to do something, you know, we were trying to think of all the ways that artists could be a part of, of the space, whether it was a program we were putting on or just a space where they were like, hey, we just, we just want the space. Y'all don't have to do nothing but unlock <laughs> the door and we got it. You know, we wanted to be both, like all, give offerings, but also let people come and do what they wanted to do um, yeah. within, you know, of course, within the scope of, of art. So we had a lot of, we had visual art classes, writing classes, conversations, um, so many different types of cultural events in such a short amount of time. It was a beautiful thing to watch unfold that we had this small, what, what also felt like for me, like, this, is anyone else going to care about yeah. this? <laughs> you know, I remember the night before we went public with the campaign, I just had this moment of complete, like, just fear that like, nobody is going to support this. What are you doing? You, you know, this is, this is wild. Why are you doing this? You, I was, you know, writing a book and knew that I would be going on a book tour. Like, why am I taking this on right now? Um, but so then to see that, no, no, people care and people are going to come alongside you and make this happen was just a beautiful, very powerful thing. Uh, How did you decide who would be world builders with you? Um, tell me about that group of folks. Sure. So, you know, immediately, because it, it, it had to happen so fast, um, once we got permission from the owner that we could rent from her and do, you know, have our vision there, um, she gave us like 30 days to, to kind of prove to her that we were serious, which, mean, which meant that I had to form a board and um, start a whole campaigns to raise funds to be in the space for a year. We had to raise enough rent money to be there for a year, um, plus programming money. So my first, my first um, kind of instinct, I guess, was that I knew I needed people that I could trust and that would be willing to work like for real, you know, to kind of get dirty and late nights and, you know, do a bunch of things, even if that's not your title and not under your job description kind of thing, you know? So 
I went to my closest friends first because I trusted them and I knew they had the skills that I needed and they were a good balance for me. So the first person I went to was Kendall and Walker, who I adore and love and respect so much. And I always say none of this could have happened had she not been in it with me. And that's like for real. Kendall's background is in education and administration. Like she ran um, the whole youth department at Brooklyn Tabernacle. And if anyone knows that church, right, exactly. So (laughs) she's one of the key administrators there. So she knows how to do um, programming. And she also, you know, had worked with young people. And then her, um, she studied black studies in, in college. And so all of that made her the perfect package for a program director and someone who could be, you know, kind of my eyes and hands at the space while I kind of dream big and work with the board. She was the everyday program person. So she was the first person alongside me kind of getting this off the ground. And yeah, kind of just, I went from there, like, who do I trust and who do, who will do the work? Um, so Jen Baker was another person who was like social media savvy, like nobody's business. And <laughs> I knew that she could help with the social media campaign you know so it was kind of like that just reaching out to individuals who I had worked with or known in some very intimate capacity before um, and then bringing them bringing them in my my kind of method was like first I just need people who are down with this vision and who are gonna put in work and then we, from there, will build on and add people who maybe we don't know so well, but they have a skill that we need. But my core group, I needed to know them and yeah. trust them. And, you know, um, again, partly because we were starting with absolutely nothing and needed to do so much so quickly. Um, so that was, yeah, my core team were mostly close friends and other authors, um, and then we kind of branched out from there over time and, and built out the board. Yeah, man. I mean, it sounds like a really important anchor to that being, of course, like strong relationships and your maintaining of those strong relationships, right? And mm-hmm. then like extreme trust, right? To like to be like, yeah, you just said a word. I don't I don't know what this is gonna be, but like let's go, let's roll. Um, that's super lucky that you have this. Yeah, and it's just, I, there's some things you just can't teach, right? Yep. And so I can't teach a person how to be loyal. I can't teach a person, <laughs> you know, how to dream wild. Like I was, I was coming to the table with some big dreams and I needed people who were going to be like, yes, you know, like we are going to do it. And then and people who were also going to stick with me to figure it out and not just be like, yes, let me know how that goes. But right. like, <laughs> yes, and what do you need me to do and how can I help? And I just had, I mean, the core group of authors were about five core authors. Um, Tracy Batiste, Oluba Masola Rude Perkovich, Danielle Clayton, Evie Zaboy, and as I mentioned, Jen Baker. Um, so those five. And then my core team at the house, um, Kendall and Walker, Jennifer Baker, and Elise Lee. And Elise was our graphic designer and kind of our person to put the logo together and the face of, of I2. You know, she did all of that. 
And then, yeah, my board, I just, <laughs> in the beginning, I, I know my skill. I'm very honest and clear about what I'm good at. I, and so I knew what I needed to kind of round out what I could bring to the table. Um, and our board chair, Ellen Hagen, also a very good friend and poet. But when I step back from our friendship and just watch her work, she is amazing at bringing people together and amazing at talking about why this work matters. You know, so I just, yeah, I've been fortunate to have people in my life who are just brilliant at what they do and who are as passionate as I am. Um, And that was, I think, so exciting about it too. I didn't have to hype anybody up. Like, you know what I mean? I didn't, it was, it was, everyone was just like, oh, you want to do, yes. Like, so that (laughs) felt, that just, it helped because on those days when it was hard and rough, we never, we never were um, kind of discouraged about our vision. Yeah. It was just always about how are we going to do this, but not should we do it or is it even worth it? Or, you know, we didn't have to have those conversations. And I think when, when you're not passionate about it, when you have people who are like half-heartedly in it, the first sign of trouble, they ready to quit. Yep. And I feel like my team was like, no matter what came at us, they were like, no, no, we're going to figure this out. We're going to make it work. And I, I, I loved that. Um, yeah, that was, that kept me going when I was like, oh my goodness, this is a lot. I feel like I had so many people to lean on. Yeah. And then what about the community that existed around the house, the brownstone, um, oh. how were they brought into the world making vision? Yeah, you know, I, they were such a crucial part of what we were doing and building there because we were doing it for them. So that before we even opened to the public, public, you know, um, we we just kind of went door to door and put these little notes in and said, hey, this is, you know, this is what's coming. Um, and these are the four things we want to do, but we would love to hear from you. And what do you want? What do you need? Um, what are your asks of us as we build this out? And um, there's a, you know, neighborhood, um, oh goodness, I forgot the name, like a group, you know, the neighborhood groups that meet and talk about things in the community and they just with open arms were like this is beautiful we've been wanting something to happen there yes how can we help you you know and so they were definitely a part of the the building of what types of programs we did I mean there were a lot of parents who said I would love to see a summer you know writing program like they a lot of the things we actually did were things that local neighbors had asked for or um, even volunteered to help make happen. I, I've worked at nonprofits my whole life. Like every professional job I've had um, has been at a nonprofit in some capacity. And one thing I critique a lot about nonprofits, especially nonprofits that are run by white people that come into neighborhoods where there are mostly people of color, um, is that they're coming in and offering something and not asking any questions. Yeah, And so I just really wanted to be a person who was listening to yeah. what the community said it wanted and needed. So a question that I have loved asking um, of the folks in this series is like the, tell me about the time we met, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly I love it because 
uh, the idea of putting relationships into a life context, right? Like what was happening, what was going on. Um, and I remember before we knew each other in the way that we do now, our stars aligned through a mutual friend years before that um, at a chance happening on a sidewalk in Harlem. Like I still remember that day, <laughs> right? Um, and then later when your board chair, Ellen, who I knew through the poetry world, reached out to discuss our um, potential consulting together. Um, I was super excited about the world you had built and asked me to come try and build it with you. Um, but where were you? What was what was that moment for you? I remember Ellen. I, I, I didn't remember that day, of course. So, you know, you reminded me that we had met. Yeah. But um, and then I immediately was like, oh, yes, I do remember that. Um, but yeah, when Ellen sent me a link, we had been as a board, you know, went through our first year and it was successful for a baby, you know, grassroots nonprofit, but we knew we had a heavy lift. And so we were thinking about how do we get um, some support and help and I needed mentorship. And so she found out about you and um, read all of consulting and sent me a link. And I was like, yes, like it just was such a perfect fit for what we needed. And the fact that you are a black woman, I was like, yes and yes. Like we gotta figure out um, how to meet her and get her to wanna work with us. Um, and so my earliest memory of you, like I, I know there are, there are a couple, but the one that stands out is when you came just kinda like, I feel like you were coming to check us out in a good way, you know, you came to our, <laughs> our fundraiser. And it was a crowded house. I, I think I had talked to you on the phone yep. previously and just kind of gave you a rundown. Um, but there was something about you being in the space and the look in your eyes and the like, girl, you know, we had yep. that moment where you were like, oh, girl, you, we can do this. Like, yep. We gonna make this happen. And I was like, oh, she believes in that. You know, it, just, it felt like, cause you, I mean, there have been a few others for sure who didn't know me, know me, who had come alongside us by then. Yeah. But you were one of the first people who had felt like, okay, yeah, this is what we said we wanted to do. You know, phase one was my core group. I know these people, I trust them, they're down. And then we were branching out into bringing in partners and people to collaborate with us who we had no personal relationship with, but, you know, respected professionally and wanted to bring in. And so it felt really confirming and affirming to have you come and be like, oh yeah, this is this is gonna happen. We got you. Yeah, um, yeah I remember that night and that moment. We were in the hallway. Yep. Um, <laughs> and you were just kind of like, yeah, we'll talk. You're like, I'll call you. Right. <laughs> and we'll debrief all the, you know, we'll debrief it all. And that just felt really good. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, like I just remember that gala as so special. Um, and you know, and I am like a person that for groups who are startups and baby nonprofits, I'm like, don't do anything called a gala, like just right. um, because so many people do it wrong. Um, so many people spend so much energy and like, don't come out in the black and like, 
it's full of people who are there for all of the wrong reasons, right? Like it's usually like there's some honoree who's loosely connected to the organization and everyone's there to shake the honoree's hand. And it's like, what? There's an organization that we're supporting, right? <laughs> um, but it was so palpable, like the love in that room um, that, yeah, I mean, I just was like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in, we're going to figure this out. Um, I think that was, uh, I got really riled up because I got to win the, um, there was an anthology of black poets signed by Langston Hughes. And I was just like, Oh yes, <laughs> this is like, I am in like, not only am I like in, in, cause like sometimes I'll go to like things and I usually t like donate even if like folks, you know, caught me as you guys did and did not have to do. Um, I was like, and I'm going to get this and I'm going to get this. <laughs> and I'm going to still write a check after this, right? Mm. Um, while we were still even in conversations about working together, right? Yeah. So it just was kind of like, it just hit me on so many levels. Um, and so I just like commend you immensely about like even those early feelings um of the community that you had gathered right um and then i remember you know just to jump ahead a year later one of my favorite moments and i want to ask you like one of your favorite moments of um my experience with like the public facing part of i2 is like at the next year's gala there was a woman in a ball gown who had flown in from texas yes. so that she could stand in langston hughes's house yeah. and feel the idea of a salon party in the ways of the Harlem Renaissance, right? Like, and, and that is like something that you did for, for people, for a community, like that can never be ta now taken out of like the history of that house. Like that was absolutely my favorite moment. And that's when I knew that like, you, we could absolutely do whatever it is we wanted to should a way be made, right? Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> that, like, folks would drive, would fly in from <laughs> Texas. Yeah. Yeah. I That was wild. I remember there's so many moments like that. Like that was a big moment, you know, because it was the gala, but I, there were so many times when people would come to the house, like during our open hours, um, though you just kind of do a self-guided tour and sign the, the guest book. And they would say, you know, I donated to the campaign and I live in California, but we're just here for, you know, whatever. So they have a relative or they're here for something else. And we were on their list of like, we have to stop by the Langston oh. house while we're on vacation or while we're here on a lot of college tours, you know, like people, parents bringing their, their young people to see the schools in New York, then they'd stop by. And so, yeah, there's just so many special stories and moments of people um, pulling me aside to say why this space was special to them and why coming meant something to them. I was, I was forever touched by those stories. You know, I, I remember what my first feeling felt like <laughs> when I walked into the home, when we were just meeting with the owner um, and just kind of dreaming and, and thinking, okay, this is what I want to do. What do you think kind of thing? And I remember his typewriter sitting on the mantle and I just was like wait what like I was like is that, 
Is that a prop or is that like for right, real? Right, right. Like, no, that's his that's his typewriter. Right? And I just could not, I couldn't believe it. And I I never lost that. Every time I opened the door to that home, I was like, this is real. You know, like this is happening. You are Renee Watson and you have a key to the Langston Hughes house and you're opening the door for an event that's about to happen. You know, and it just was always a special, special moment to engage with the community and to see to see other people have that experience of coming and feeling so in awe of the space. Yeah. Um, another like favorite moment of our like work together, because we worked together for almost two years. Yeah. Um, was, uh, well, in general, like when I think about our calls, I think about joy. Um, even mm. it, when we were in like deep in the work, right? Yeah. Um, and I think about laughter and pushing each other. Um, and I remember when we first started chatting and I was like, Renee, you have to ask people for money and don't be shy about it, right? Mm -hmm. And then later, like near the end of the second year, you're like, so I just walked into that meeting and I said, <laughs> we need this investment for you in order for us to proceed, right? Like, uh -huh. <laughs> let's talk about that evolution for a minute. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um yeah, I mean, I you you were a cheerleader for me. You pushed me to do things that were so far outside of my comfort zone, my personality, you know, all of it. And I I felt just so supported by you. And I've said this before. I just, I felt seen and validated. It it is very lonely being an executive director. Yeah. Um, and because uh, you know, again, because I was working with close friends and um, community partners, there was so much I couldn't share. Like I was very careful to set boundaries of, you know, this is, this is an executive director issue and I can't just vent to <laughs> my program director now because this is, Kendallin is, the, the hat she's wearing now is not just homie, girlfriend, friend, you know? So yeah, yeah. you were the person who I could really be raw with and tell everything to. Um, you knew our numbers, you knew all my questions and fears and insecurities, like all of that. So yeah, I grew so much in, in, that, in that space of time. E even outside of I2, it's so interesting how for me, um, the things that we were working on for the organization were things I was also just working on personally mm. in my life of just like advocating for myself yep. and asking for what I want and what I need and not letting people take advantage of my kindness or my generosity. Um, so yeah, in so many ways, just all around, <laughs> uh, you were a godsend and, and it was perfect timing to meet you and to work with you. Um, but yeah, girl, by the end of it, I was like, give me your money. Like you say, you, you say you want this to happen. Then I need right. you to come on and stop all the talking. Like what, right. what, why, you know? So I, I love that I got that boldness and I, I definitely uh, want to keep that as yeah. a part of my, my personality now. But uh, yeah, I, that was, our phone calls were my highlight always. Uh -huh. Even when I was traveling, I was like, listen, okay, I think we had like a 10 a.m. Wednesday morning yep. phone call. Yep, yep, yep. So I would always do the math. I did not care if I was on the West Coast and it had to be 7 o'clock my time. Whatever was 
we're going to talk. You know, I was just always like, if we got to move it around, I, I need, you were an anchor, I feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, those were precious, like kind of, they just felt like sacred. It was a sacred hour of the week. That was also for me because so much of what I was doing for I2 was giving. Yeah. Which I signed up for, so I'm not complaining. Yep. <laughs> I'm just saying that's no, what it course. was, right? And then, like I said, as an author, I mean, I, I was still full-time writing and book touring and doing all of that stuff with, with young people and educators. So my life was so full and it was so much of me giving out. And with you, you were pouring back into me and you were kind of like giving me a moment to pause and breathe and just like, you know, reflect. And I needed that on the calendar because I don't think I would have done it had it not been like a, we, this is what, you know, you have to do because it's, if it's on the calendar, it's happening. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I needed that. I needed you. Yeah, man. I mean, it, and it didn't, what I love about the space that I get to occupy right now, just in my life is that like, I can be pretty selective about the projects that I take on, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to be in a position of supporting enterprises, right? And helping them move money and resources towards mission. Like I, I too, right? Have to care about that mission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like another important component, which I didn't learn my first year of consultancy. So like you caught me on like year two, right? Mm -hmm. um, was that like, I also have to like the person that I'm going to be in direct <laughs> communication with. <laughs> or else like, it's not going to be fun. And like, mm. you know, if I didn't, if I was going to continue, like continually put myself in that position, like I might as well stay in a full-time job. Right. right. <laughs> like, and, um, I love that. Like, I feel like our friendship, well, it became a friendship, right. It became a solid yeah. friendship. And I feel like, um, it was also rooted in just like stuff that had absolutely nothing to do with I2, like <laughs> Grace Anatomy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love Ashonda Rhimes. Yes. Right. I think I remember when you, I feel like maybe you said something like, I don't think you said self care, but it was just kind of like, well, what are you do? What are you doing tonight or tomorrow? It's something. It was a casual question just yeah. about like making sure you take time for yourself or something. And I was like, oh, I absolutely do. I was like, every Thursday night. And then <laughs> you were like, I, wait a minute. Are you as great? Right. <laughs> we just, man, it was like, oh, this is a done deal. This is my forever friend. She was right. like, mad at me. What? Right. Um, so yeah, I remember that, and I love that we we still watch. Like we're we're committed. Yeah, starting <laughs> over <laughs> every uh, Thursday. Yes, um, it's the best. Oh man. Um. So of course, like for the call, right? We're talking about I2 in the past tense to some extent. Yeah. Um, because you had to make the difficult decision to stop operations. Um, to the extent that you can, can you talk about like how you came to that decision, who supported it and how, um, and maybe like how you feel about it now, almost a half year later? Sure. Um, you know, the goal was always to purchase the building and we were, making plans for that um, and the owner no longer wanted to sell it and the lease 
that was provided to us wasn't something we felt we could sign. Like we just, it, the terms of it weren't working for us. So it was just, we were in a hard place of we, like our board had, was very clear that we cannot sign this new lease and she's not ready to sell. So we had to walk away. Um, and it was, I mean, it's up there with one of like the top hardest yeah. decisions I've had to make like in my life. Um, I'm grateful that I had, I mean, obviously you were a big support in that. I mean, you know, I am, I, part of, I think you have to, if you're going to dream big and have all these plans, you, there's part of my personality is to be very determined and to find a way. And we were talking about earlier about, you know, black women, and we just know how to make a way out of no way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much of what was happening was that, I mean, you know, I wasn't being paid as an executive director at all. Um, By choice, my board was always like, so we really need to get you on set. But I was like, well, until we can do some other things, I will not take a salary. I need to make sure other people get paid first and, you know, all of that. So we, I was, I was really at my, like, overextending myself. It was to the point where we had to do something um, or I probably would not have been healthy, just emotionally, mentally, physically. Uh, And you were very gracious and kind and gentle, but also very firm of like, it's okay to walk away it's okay you you know you you have done all you can do and when you get to that point then you know you have to let go and um I think in the beginning I was just so sad and I was like no but no like this what was the point if we're if you know it was kind of why did we do all of this if it's not gonna last and I just felt like I was letting the community down like I was letting people down who hadn't made it to the house yet um, I feel like we were just kind of getting into our rhythm and, you know, had a, all these other big dreams that we had not, we hadn't fulfilled yet. And so there was so much grief. Like I really, it was a loss that I went through all the stages, yeah. of, you know, denial, anger, sadness, all the things. And just finally acceptance of like, okay, I got to let go and it's okay um, to let go. And so, yeah, what you said, it hasn't been, you said six months later, goodness. Yeah, almost, it's, right? It's so weird. It feels like, sometimes it feels like it just happened. And then other times it feels a long, long time <laughs> ago. Um, but I feel okay on most days. You know, I still, I love that still people reach out to say thank you or to share a memory. Um, we have established, you know, a, a scholarship with highlights where, once we're back into meeting together again and doing events in, in person after quarantine, um, we'll have like a, a black women's writer retreat. So there are some things that will happen maybe annually that would be kind of in honor of I2 and the work that we did. But yeah, I, I, it was really, really hard to let go. But now being a little more removed from it, I can say the sadness isn't, as strong as it was and I'm able to kind of be proud of what we did and I feel like it took me a while to even think of it that way because I was just I was I was really disappointed and sad and and again just feeling the burden of um 
everybody else's expectations and desires for that space right. and wanting to make sure that we gave the community closure. I am very proud of that. Yep. Like, um, what did you do? We were able, because when I, when the writing was on the wall, like this is mm-hmm. not going well, this is not going to happen. We need, you know, I'm so glad I had like the, I don't know, the wherewithal to plan farewell events. And so we were able to announce it to the community, I think a month before, and then let people know, you know, hey, if you do want to come, you have these last two months of the year, we're going to be closed by the end of December. And then we had a, we had a private gathering for like our key donors for the board for like what we call our volunteers, you know, friends of I2 and got to celebrate and honor people at that. And then we had a, a full day, like all day event where we had open mic and um, this celebration where the community could come in and out, in and out all day. And that was so healing for me because like you were mentioning the woman from Texas, there were people who, you know, drove in from Philly and from DC, yeah. Connecticut, um, New Jersey, you know, just to come um, who had never been or who had been before, but wanted to come one last time or come to thank me personally so it was it was just a day where i was loved on and yep. i needed that because i was so broken by then yep. uh, so yeah it was powerful and i'm so grateful because i think about had we had we still been an organization now i don't know what um the coronavirus how that would have affected us right yep and it could be that we would have just closed and that's it and so i i'm very thankful that we were able to at least gather um intentionally before leaving the space and not closing because we ran out of money or because of a crisis like yeah i'm very glad about that yeah there is absolutely like something to be said of the model of like organization defined closure yeah you got to write that story um and then i know i said it before but just to like put it on this part of the conversation like I think that it is so special that like you get to be a part of the history of that house that like no matter what happens to it right like it's gone back into sort of like private hands um even if it opens back up into public hands right like you were part of the idea of bringing it back into folks's in the 21st century public consciousness and that is still like an amazing touch point for me for the house. I don't know if you feel that, but. Um. No, thank you. I mean, yeah, I remember when you said that to me the first time and it, it like gutted me. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely don't think, you know, I, I don't, I wasn't thinking of it that way. But now, yeah, I, I'm, I'm honored that I'm a part of the history of the space and, and that so many of us, um, are a part of it you know like by me being a part of it, everyone that i brought with me i guess yeah just yeah it it can't be taken away that it happened and i think in the beginning i i just felt so all over the place emotionally that i was not remembering that that we did make history and that we were you know Mm -hmm. we were doing something there and that regardless of what happens in the future that that happened and that we have a record of it happening um and that is personally fulfilling, but also when I step outside of myself, it's a powerful thing 
to think about that an organization that was really mostly ran by women of color yep. um, <laughs> was established very quickly and accomplished so much in three years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your mission, your your goal was to buy the house, but like the mission wasn't to buy the house. And so like, I feel right. like in terms of like as an institution, um, as, you know, organizations think about like how do they kind of chase after their mission and the things in which they do, I feel like you lived and accomplished that like so often um, in all the ways in which you were out which also made sense when we, when you were sort of like planning or thinking through scenarios, like would it be, mm-hmm. could I too be elsewhere? Could it be, you know, something, something, something? And it's just like, no, it was around the house and it was around building a community and a world around the house where, mm-hmm. you know, all of those, where all the magic happened and separate of the house that like, the spirit of I2 still lives, right? And the folks that got to experience it and experience mm-hmm. people who went through it, but like to put it in another place just wouldn't, I don't think it would be the same. No, yeah. And we had that conversation as a board and with some of our like key um, donors and friends who, you know, were crucial into getting us started with seed money in the beginning. And I think we were all on the same page finally. You know, there were definitely in the beginning like, oh, we I think when you you just don't want something to end. So at first there were so many ideas about what we could do, but I knew like in my my own self I was like, no. It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's over and that's okay. that's okay. It hurts. Like I was very clear that just because I'm saying that it's over and that we have to figure out how to move on, you know, I, I am also hurting. And I think that was an interesting thing to model for my team was that we can be hurt and sad and also make a plan to walk away. And I think sometimes when you're hurt and sad, you, you just, you don't want to hurt. So you, yeah. you, you, everyone was trying to figure out, well, how can we stop the hurt? How can we just do this somewhere else? Or how can we stay anyway? And, you know, and all these things, I was like, no, 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 no. We got to just deal with the fact that this, really hurts and also we got to put a plan into transition um yeah so that was something that was an interesting space to be in as the leader to kind of force the team to think about what it means to end something because we had put so much intention behind starting yep um and i wanted us to be as intentional about how we said goodbye too I think a lot about the people um, who I got to meet that were, you know, your world builders with you mm-hmm. on the board and on the team. And then just like the folks who always showed up and mobilized everything yeah. for you, um, like your author friends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I wonder, you know, cause they, it felt like that was their thing, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like Jason, Mm-hmm. for example right like that but like it was a perfect match for him and maybe I just don't know enough about like his life obviously we're not as close for me to know that but I just wonder like if they found another place to land like you know part of me is like where are they out in the world and right. how can we <laughs> how can we like push that energy towards another like 
black arts nonprofit that could yeah. do that same love and energy. I don't know. This is just me like thinking in that way. But no, I don't yeah, know. I I remember that's the that's who I'm when I'm when I was thinking about all the people that this impacts to say goodbye, like to close. That's who I'm talking about. Like it was the community immediately, like literally our neighbors on the block. It was yeah. the community that you know were coming to events and are the young people that were coming to the summer institute all of that right but then it was yeah like jason reynolds jacqueline woodson kwame alexander all these people who believed in us and not just in a way that was like i be- like you know like i mentioned before like oh that's great that you're doing that over there mm-hmm. but that were super invested and dedicated and would come with their money and their time yep. <laughs> to be a part of us um and our board member lady sasha who's like you know lives in harlem from Harlem and was so excited about what we were doing I wanted to make sure that they were okay and that like how how yeah I just I had a lot of emotions around that but you know I I don't know the name of it I don't even know if there's a name but um, I know that Jacqueline Woodson is working on something (laughs) Um, uh, and I believe it's inspired by James Baldwin and his work Um, so that's exciting that I've heard a little bit about that space. It's a house. I'm not his house or anything, but a house. Um, and I, be- I believe it's upstate New York. Um, and, you know, I, one of the things that was very comforting was that because I got people who were already doing the work. And so I had a lot of peace that they're going to keep doing what they do. I mean, Jason <laughs> loves young people. He's a writer. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. He's a kid. He's, this is who he is. And so he was being who he actually is in real life with us. Yep. So I was excited about that part of it too, that I didn't feel like anyone on my team, none of the board members, that this was the only thing they were involved in, but that at their core, that is who they are and what they believe in. So they're all still doing that work in other ways. And I, I'm very, there's something about that that brings me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, kind of makes me think about yeah that's why I chose them in the first place because they were already about it and so yeah they just are continuing to to be who they are in the world so yeah a lot of us are still you know doing what we do uh I know that Bimmy and Tracy still work with We Need Diverse Books and Ellen is with Dream Yard you know like there's a lot of people who are still kind of doing this work and it's, it looks different, of course. It's not I too, but but that that seedling and those core values of making sure underrepresented voices get heard is very much living out in all of our lives individually. I love that. Um, I had a conversation with my friend Jessica Lynn um, for the series earlier this week, and she had quoted Lord Audre Lord, and I'm probably going to mess it up, but um, she used the, that Lord had talked about this idea of a possibility framework and like this um, idea that she could see models and possibilities and people around her that made her like dreams seem possible, mm. like the things that she was already leading towards seem possible. Um, it's kind of like in this space of mentorship or um, like seeing the things that the desires of our hearts in other folks. And I, I feel yeah. like, you know, I too became a an organism of a possibility model for a lot of folks too, right? Like um, for the folks that came in and got to see all of the magic at work. So mm-hmm. just wanted to offer that. Um, 
I think that this was super amazing for us to mark for the record the three years of I2 Arts. Um, do you have any last things you want to say or think about reflect on? No, just thank you. Thank you for being a part of our story. You know, like I, I love as a storyteller, uh, I'm always intrigued by you have the main character, but it's really all about the people around that character um, that either become the critical part of their, their life that pushes them towards what they want. You know, every character has that burning desire yeah. and there's someone that's in the way of that desire. And then there are people who are um, there to help them get to it. And I, I'm so, I'm just very grateful that you were a person who came along and helped me get to the desire. And that, I mean, like I was saying that it was like, I love how you said the the goal was to buy the house, but the mission was about so much more. And in that way, we didn't fail at our mission. So when I think about my core values of just how I want to live my life and who I am in the world, um, that's why I think we became friends because of who you really are. Yeah. And I never felt like you were just working with me to accomplish this one thing for this organization but it just felt like two women who coming together who see each other we talked about you know losing our fathers and just kind of outside of the professional business stuff acknowledge that we were sisters yep. and and I thank you for that I know that's a gift and again having been in the nonprofit world my whole life it is a rare gift to find that kind of friendship um, with someone in this work so yeah thank you for seeing me thank you thank you thanks so much for taking the time to listen and go deep with us you can find other episodes and excerpts of deep in the work on anchor.fm slash deep in the work for more information about Red Olive Creative Consulting and the work we do to move people and resources to art and culture organizations, visit our agency website at www.redoliveconsulting.com. Bye, y'all.